Hi everyone, I'm Liam Sanyo from Inside Scientific, your favorite online source for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content helping you do your best work. This episode of Expert Answers features Dr. Melanie White, who is a Hart Foundation Future Leader Fellow based in the Charles Perkins Center at the University of Sydney. Dr. White recently joined us for a webinar to discuss basic, isolated Langendorf heart principles, key experimental design considerations, core technology requirements, and best practice tips to support consistency and validation of your research. Let's jump right in. Our first question today comes from Juan Carlos, who asked, does the study of isolated heart remain a valid method to study coronary vascular reactivity? And what are the advantages of this method of experimental study? It's a really important question. And although it's outside my area of expertise, what we can do is consider the coronary function, which is measured by Langendorf, relies on the coronary vascular reactivity. So therefore, it would seem that it is still an appropriate and valid method to study coronary vascular reactivity. Obviously, the advantage of this method of an experimental study is that the coronary vasculature is not going to be responding to additional factors like those humoral factors that could be released in an in vivo situation. But in this particular case, maybe something like a crystalloid perfusion setup would be ideal so that we don't have any of those humoral effects that may come from a whole blood perfusion system. Okay, perfect. Sounds like we have quite a few researchers with us who are new to the technique, and we've had a few variations of this question, but Lauren asked, what are the biggest pitfalls for researchers who are new to this application? Do you have any recommendations or details that you wish you knew when you first got started? And what aspect do you find most challenging surrounding Langendorf setup and data acquisition? We've been using Langendorf now for the better part of oh, 20 years. Gosh, where's the time gone? And without a shadow of a doubt, it just takes time to become proficient. You can't shortcut it. There are no shortcuts. It's about how the experiment feels in your hands. It's not going to be the same for every person performing the experiment. And that's one thing I would say. If you are doing a long-term study, make sure it's always the same pair of hands doing the experiment. There's nothing worse than having to look at a series of hearts and try to understand what the difference is. And it just comes down to a different experimental, different person conducting the experiments. Obviously, the condition of the heart, that's not something you're actually going to know until you actually excise the heart. Animals aren't great at letting us know when they're not well, but we have a better chance of understanding that after we've excised the heart from the cadaver. The last one, and this is something we learned the hard way, keep your perfusate reservoirs closed. You can introduce so many sources of dust just by having those reservoirs open. So keep them closed at all times. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. In your presentation, you mentioned that cannulation can be very difficult and we have had a few questions come in about it. So Melanie, what do you recommend when removing the heart and keeping it in the best condition possible? So maximum cannulation time uh, or cooling the heart before removing it uh, and so on. Yeah, this is really important. And as you mentioned, we did sort of touch on it in the presentation, but we, the time 
period that we're looking at is not the time from the injection of the anesthesia or from inhalation of the anesthesia, it's from opening the diaphragm. These animals have only been heavily sedated until that point. It's opening of the diaphragm that removes that negative pressure in the pulmonary cavity that leads to, to the death of the animal. So that period, it should be measured from the opening of the diaphragm to the hanging of the heart. And we really do try to keep it as short as possible. And it's for this main reason we actually use the rat model rather than a mouse model. Obviously with the mouse, the vasculature is significantly smaller. In the majority of setups using mouse models, you need a dissecting microscope to really make sure you are gently and carefully opening the aorta for cannulation. And it's incredibly tricky and that will increase the amount of time. So in that particular case, you wanna make sure you have that cold cardioplegic solution and incredibly delicate hands as well. These aortas, while they're elastic to a degree, they are very, very delicate and we need to be really careful with that. Perfect, okay. Now, here's a good question that came in actually during registration. Gonzalo Peluso said, it takes me three minutes between euthanasia and starting the perfusion of the isolated heart. Uh, do you think this is a good time in order to reduce the damage of the heart because of ischemia? Well, once again, it comes back to incision through the diaphragm rather than the period of euthanasia because different animals will respond differently to the euthanasia. Some of the animals will go down quite quickly. Some of them will take a little bit of time. And that's totally dependent on the animal. And that's why it's key to record that time period from incision within the diaphragm. So three minutes, if it's from euthanasia to perfusion, you're doing really well. If it's three minutes on something larger than a mouse from incision into the diaphragm and hanging, it's starting to get a little bit long. And it just comes with practice. And keep in mind, as I showed in the video, that you can trim the excess tissue away from the heart once it is being perfused. That's always an option to reduce that time period significantly. Okay, great answer. The next question here, Dieter said, I sometimes struggle with slow effluent flow rate when using a constant pressure system, uh, 70 millimeters of mercury, which makes me concerned that I'm not optimally perfusing both coronaries. Any tips on how to improve this? And is it always necessary to puncture the pulmonary artery? So when we think of flow rates, obviously we have our flow rate into the heart and we have our flow rate out of the heart and they won't be matched. And that's part of the, I guess, the improvement that was made on Oscar Langendorf's original Langendorf setup, that they weren't necessarily looking at the effluent flow rate. They were only looking at the affluent flow rate. So as far as the system is concerned, if you're developing pressure, if you're developing a system pressure or a perfusion pressure of 70 millimetres of mercury, you've got a closed system. You're probably going to be perfusing both of those coronaries and I'd be happy with that. I mean, if you're worried about increased in pressure and they're not being sufficient effluent, consider something like heparin if it's not already being used. There could be small blood clots that could be elevated, that could be artificially elevating that perfusion pressure without actually allowing for appropriate perfusion of the coronary bed. There could be multiple things happening. All right, perfect. Now, here's another good question from registration. 
we're having trouble maintaining steady diastolic pressure. And specifically, we see a decline when we use an LV pressure balloon. So initially, we suspected leakage, but it still happened after we've ruled that possibility out. Any advice? Definitely. We always see a drop in the diastolic pressure, and we account this to that small period between excision of the heart and hanging of the heart, which is essentially a small ischemic insult. And what the heart is actually doing is it's going into a level of contracture. So by putting the balloon in with a small diastolic end load, what we're doing is we're allowing the heart to relax around it. So for a small decline in diastolic pressure, it's totally accepted. And that's why we, in the RAT setting, we would normally set our diastolic pressure to between 10 and 15 millimetres of mercury during the baseline period. And we've got that baseline period to see how that diastolic pressure is reducing. We definitely don't want it to go into negative. It makes it difficult to calculate an LVDP, but that's why we have it there. We can always reinflate the balloon if we find that the diastolic pressure has dropped a little bit too far. So it's a consideration. Okay, excellent. Now, Melanie, I know you talked a bit about this during your presentation, but maybe you could just elaborate. The question is, do you have any advice on defining exclusion criteria? And what are the right parameters to be included in a protocol of ischemia reperfusion for a Langendorf experiment? Yeah, we definitely have minimum parameters, but it's also important to consider maximum parameters. And we saw this for a small period in our group as well. So our minimum parameters, which we discussed in the presentation, we're looking for a flow rate that is that is too low for that equation that we discussed. So in our RAT system, if we have a flow rate of less than 10 mils per minute, this is indicative that the heart may not be ready to appropriately respond to say an ischemic insult same with the rate pressure product and we use the rate pressure product because that allows us to consider both the lvdp as well as the heart rate in our consideration for an exclusion criteria but as i mentioned not only is it important to have a minimum exclusion criteria but also a maximum exclusion criteria I mean, when you consider the fact that a lot of the time we're considering how the heart responds by comparison to our end baseline period, if you've got, let's say, a rate pressure product above 45,000, it's going to be incredibly hard for that heart to recover to anything close to that. So there's some sort of extra factor that's happening in that heart maybe there's too much calcium that's allowing it to contract with significantly more force that's responding in a maximal parameter which should be considered for exclusion so definitely minimum and maximum exclusion criteria are important for Langendorf experiments but especially for ischemia reperfusion where we're looking at how they recover following that insult okay fantastic Here's another question. What is the importance of blood gases, lactate, isotonicity, osmotic pressures, and so on? And how do these affect heart function? Without a shadow of a doubt, they definitely have the ability to influence the performance of the heart. My background isn't so much in blood gases, but as I discussed, especially with things like lactate, because lactate will ultimately change the extracellular pH, if we don't wash that away, that has the ability to create like a metabolic acidosis situation. And that has the ability to really significantly influence how the heart perfuses 
on the Langendorf system. So considering that we're aiming for a, P, a physiological pH of 7.4, if we have too much lactate in our system, that's going to significantly drop that pH and that's going to influence things like the force of contracture, but also the heart rate as well. Okay, perfect. When perfusing with erythrocyte-containing solutions, do you have any advice on good measures to prevent hemolysis? That's a really good question, and one we are actually about to come to. In the past, we've only ever used crystalloid perfusion systems, and we're only now starting to think of moving across to erythrocyte-containing solutions. And that's simply because of the additional hands-on nature that's required. So if you have any advice to, to share with us on good measures to prevent hemolysis, I'd be really happy to have that chat. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune into future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work and share science. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next time.